the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And this week oh. we continue our investigation into that witchy world. And this time we're covering a movie that we've been, well not threatening to do, but we've wanted to do this for pretty much ever since we started this podcast. And it's taken us 79 episodes to do it. It is Andrew Fleming's The Craft. Thanks once again to Mitch Bain for providing our spooky theme tune for our Halloween-based segments. We are going to be looking at 1996's The Craft, which is our second delve into the world of witches. What we will say is that some of the discussions that we will be having contain topics that some people may find distressing, so that's a warning before we start down the road of talking about this movie. Yes, and there will be a trigger warning in certain language used in the synopsis that I'm about to read, so just be prepared if you're not comfortable with these discussions. So, The Craft 1996. I'm going to read a synopsis from IMDb written by Dismal Angel. Sarah Bailey, a 16-year-old troubled teenager with a painful past and a history of suicidal tendencies and hallucinations, moves to L.A., with her father and stepmother to start a new life and is enrolled into a Catholic school. It is at school that she comes into contact with three unlikely friends, Nancy, Bonnie and Rochelle, all who are socially outcast with various problems in their lives that they wish they could fix. Nancy, Bonnie and Rochelle dabble in occult practices and when they notice Sarah has the power of a natural witch, they talk her into joining their coven. When Sarah joins, they soon realise that with a fourth witch in the coven, they can begin to cast spells they couldn't before and begin to amend all the things wrong in their lives. But like everything else in life, things come with a price. Yes, things definitely do come with a price here. Well, what can I say about the craft? It's one of my favourite movies of all time, so it's absolutely brilliant. That's all we need to say about it. See you next week, guys. Bye. <laughs> no, I'm completely on the same page as you here. Same page of the spell book. 
So The Craft for me is a very formative film. It is a film that I became acquainted with. Originally was when I was about eight years old. Now, don't worry, people. I did not watch this when I was eight. Basically, after I was traumatised by Nicholas Rurig's 1990 film, The Witches, I was very intrigued by other movies that featured witches. And I always remember seeing the cover of The Craft with the four girls at the front with thunder and lightning behind them and their glowing eyes. And I was really drawn to this video cover and I was curious to see if this film would be just as scary as The Witches. In my eyes, it isn't, but obviously this is a much more mature film. And I finally got round to watching it when I was around the age of 13 and I got it on a double VHS. I don't know if you guys remember those, which also contained the film Urban Legend. So I had a double bill of The Craft and Urban Legend. That's how I first watched it and I became pretty obsessed with this movie from the moment I saw it. I absolutely loved it and I still do. It, it never gets old for me watching it to the point where um, it did influence me a little bit to dabble in the occult myself. Only, um, you know, white magic and that sort of thing, but it was a very influential film for me. Yeah, I didn't go into the occult after it. I did watch it many, many times. I had an ex-rental copy of it. I had this sell-through video copy of it. I got it on DVD, I've got it on Blu-ray, so I'm kind of a fan of the craft, you might say. It is a great movie. It's the sort of movie that it is aimed at teens and, and young adults, but I think you can take a lot out of it, regardless of what age you are, because the themes are universal, and it's all about trying to either fit in, if you're an outsider, or reject all the conformism. So you get all of that going on. And as with Witches of Eastwick that we covered last episode, again, it focuses on strong, empowered female characters to almost the, well, not well not the, the sort of elimination of the male characters, but the male characters don't really have a lot to say in this movie, which is absolutely fine, as I'm concerned, because it is focused on the experience of girls who are outsiders in an environment where you are forced to conform or forced to fit into a particular social group, which is kind of classic high school movie behaviour. Early on, there is a reference to The Witches of Eastwick when our foursome are uncharitably referred to as the bitches of Eastwick by someone else in the high school. And of course, without the movie The Witches of Eastwick, the craft probably wouldn't exist, as we stated in the previous episode, that The Witches of Eastwick set the template for this type of female empowerment with witchcraft in film. And again, this is very much a teen movie, as we've said. I think it's very much stood the test of time, and it's still one of the more relevant teen movies, because I think sometimes if you've grown up with something and you've got nostalgic eyes on it once you rewatch that film as an adult it does not have the same effect on you and i think that an example of that of something we've already covered would be she's all that sorry Darren, <laughs> but that is an example i can say here where loved it when i was young watched it as an adult and thought this film is awful like what the message they're trying to convey in this film is absolutely awful but with the craft, it still resonates and you can definitely feel empathy for all the characters because in their own ways, they are all going through their own traumas. It's a coming of age film primarily through the lens of witchcraft. And 
I definitely feel empathy for all the characters and I can see myself in some of them because I was bullied at a young age so I can completely empathise with elements that all of them go through and just feeling worthless and I think it's very important with how they portray that and I think it's again it's very empowering film for teenage girls and as you said the male characters in it I mean we've got Skeet Ulrich's character Chris who's meant to be the jock slash player type who is not very kind towards women he's a user he's an abuser and there's that element with him then of course there's Fruza Bolk's character Nancy her stepfather he's an abusive alcoholic and then you've also got Sarah's father who is kind of present but she pushes him away I think his character he doesn't know how to handle his daughter's teenage growing pains because he's a single father he's lost his wife so he's at a bit of a distance so it's interesting how the male characters are shoved aside or they've got their own issues and then you've got the main characters who together they are stronger and they do some incredible things once their um, powers start to evoke. Clifty Young's character Sarah's dad he's the most sympathetic a lot but as you say he doesn't really know how to handle the situation the other guys in the piece are pretty fucking awful, to be perfectly honest. And they're very self-centred. Skeet Ulrich's character, I mean, he's great in it, but his character is just awful. And he wants to use girls and he thinks that his position as the guy who plays on the football team, that he can use that to basically sleep with whoever he wants and then discard them. Oh, in Sarah's case, she's having none of it, so... He's spreading awful rumours about which are just not true. The guys in the movie, they're not great. But that this is they're meant to be not great. It is about girls dealing with these idiots and deal with them, they do. And even though some of them take it too far, you still do have a lot of empathy for them because you feel for their situation. And... My personal viewpoint, if I'd have been at high school at the time, I'd have loved these girls because I've never been particularly the sort of person that would wanted to belong to anything. I wasn't much of a joiner. I mean, I wouldn't say I was a complete outsider, but I was quite happy to be around on my own. I wouldn't. I mean, I would hang around with groups of people, but I wasn't really kind of in it for that sort of social connection. So if there'd have been like four really odd girls who were performing witchcraft at my school I'd have been thinking great fantastic yeah and as I say like it encouraged me to dabble in a little bit of the craft I think it did influence a lot of people because growing up I remember that girls in my school used to you know dress kind of gothy and did dabble in wicker and that type of thing so I think this film did leave its mark more so than many other witchcraft films at the time this one is definitely for me the quintessential witchcraft movie and when I think of witches this is the first movie that would probably come to my mind and the one that I love the most. Yeah it's really well written as well you'd think that if it was a teen movie and it's dealing with the supernatural then it would just be the usual kind of slightly silly dabbled in horror but really wasn't all that focused on it. No this has got some pretty horrific stuff in it considering I mean, it was originally aimed at being a PG-13 in the States and it's got creepy moments in it and it's got some memorably creepy moments in it. But I think that's where they were aiming it at the time. 
right up to the point when they had to release the movie and then the MPAA said, well, it's young girls doing witchcraft. It's got to be an R-rated movie, which means that maybe if they'd have known that it was going to be an R from the start, it might have been a bit more extreme. But I think it's fine the way it is. It doesn't need to be full of gore. It's creepy and spooky enough as it is. And it's focusing on the characters more. The horror's kind of a byproduct of what happens to them all. And it works because you do really fall for these characters straight away. They're all different. They've all got their own problems going on. They've all got their own subplots, which is quite interesting because normally you'd have kind of the main character in and then the others would be kind of pushed to the back. But here, all of the main characters, all four of them, they have something to deal with and it does focus on them all at different points in the story which is good what it does deal with in terms of bullying it also deals with racist bullying which is quite uncomfortable to watch but it's meant to be uncomfortable to watch and it deals with how if you're somebody that's not white at a school which is predominantly white there's your own struggles in addition to having to get through the school day and having to get through your studies You've got people like Laura Lizzie, who is on the diving team, who can't wait to tear strips off you just because you're not a blonde, white, waspy girl. I think they were very progressive in dealing with the racism plot in this film. Because I think at one point it was allegedly going to be cut, Mm. but I'm really glad they persevered with it because it was so important for Rochelle's character and her development. I remember at the time, like, that line that the popular girl Laura says to her, as into why she doesn't like her, I remember that really sitting uncomfortably with me at the time, and I felt quite shocked. Even at 13, I thought, this this just is not right, this is horrible. And obviously you can't wait then to see the Laura character get her comeuppance, and that she does. But I think even with Rochelle, she's probably one of the more empathetic ones of the girls, And you do get a sense that she does kind of feel bad for what she's put this girl through after she watches her suffering. Yeah, she does. And that's kind of one of the places where the effects get deployed really nicely. It's not a movie that's full of outrageous effects. I mean, towards the end there are some, but it's more subtle. And there's a point at which Rochelle realises what she's done and feels really bad about it. And there's a reflection of her in the locker room and the reflection of her turns away. Yeah, and as you said before, the film is just really brilliantly written because we get it, the characters established, and then we get the excitement of them dabbling in this witchcraft and watching their powers grow and evolve. And then when the powers come back on them three times worse, it's kind of like you don't want it to, but it's kind of a a lesson, isn't it? They can't just get away with being able to do whatever they want to whoever they want. The scene that makes me most uncomfortable, though, is the scene where the character of Chris nearly assaults Sarah. That is quite disturbing to watch. And I think with that whole scene, the way it's set up, and it's like, at first, it's a bit of a joke because, obviously, he's gone around spreading these awful rumours about her, and then she's got her own back on him by doing a love spell where he is completely besotted with her, following her around. And it's just a bit of a laugh at first, and... Sarah and Bonnie, Nev Campbell's character, are just like giggling about it and while he like follows her around like a lovesick puppy, but it takes this really dark turn. And I think that's the moment Sarah realises like they've taken everything too far and that she could be involved in this really 
horrific situation. Luckily, she gets out of it. But I think even though it hints at rape, that is enough and it's enough to get under your skin. Yeah, again, Skate Ulrich, great at being a genuinely awful person. I'm sure he's lovely in real life, but he pushes the character to the limit. And you're right, it starts off that sequence as being a bit silly and a bit kind of, you know, he's he's trying to take her to dinner and he's kind of, he's trying to impress her basically. And then all of a sudden they're, they're stuck in the middle of nowhere in a car. And from that point on, you think, hold on a minute, this guy really isn't on the level. He's going to do something really bad. And he does try to. That's what raises this movie above the level of a lot of teen movies. It's not afraid to grapple with darker subjects. It still isn't a terrible night out at the cinema, this, or a terrible night in in front of the TV, because it deals with them in a way that you can put everything into context and you're still entertained. But again, it's not afraid. It won't shy away from dealing with stuff that you wouldn't normally get dealt with in a team movie, which I think is great. It's one of the many things that I love this movie for. Equally, it's always ready to pull you back with a bit of humour as well. So there's the field trip that they take where they go on the bus, which is absolutely classic, where Feruza Bolt's character is just staring this little kid out because this kid is staring at them and thinking, oh, they're they're quite strange. And she just flips her sunglasses down and just glares at this kid. And that follows on to the point where they get off the bus and the bus driver warns them and says, oh, watch out for the weirdos. And Feruza Bolt says, we are the weirdos, mister. <laughs> and I actually have that on a dress. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm very proud of my craft dress. I should wear it more often, but I, yeah, I don't. I don't often because going out in public, I probably will get stared at <laughs> and the wrong idea. But yeah, it's such an iconic line, and Faruza Bolt's performance in this. Oh my god, it's just incredible. It's so iconic. I mean, there's still memes of it going around the internet, even to the point where people are comparing her look to Tim Curry as Frank Enferter. And people are making the connection saying, oh my God, that Nancy must be Frank Enferter's daughter, just because of the expressions. Yeah, she's great in it. She really does go for it as well. Even from the start, you know, Nancy's a little bit unhinged because she's got things like, she's got a noose in her locker at school, which is, which is hilarious on one hand. But also you should think, well, what kind of person has got a noose in their locker? And as the, as the movie wears on, she just gets more and more detached from reality. And by the end, she's just, she's kind of the, it's Feruza Bulk's sort of channeling a bit of Jack Nicholson, I think. That she just goes completely bonkers at the end of this movie, and she's fantastic. She's really the perfect counterpoint to Robin Tunney's character. Robin Tunney's Sarah, and she's very calm and collected. And she's very reserved. Whereas Feruza Bulk, she's just 11 out of 10 all the time. Everything she does is exaggerated. And you just feel that she's going to explode at any moment. And she does quite often. It's a fantastic performance. I absolutely love Feruza Bulk in this. You definitely wouldn't have the craft without her. And of course, the scene where she gets her revenge on Chris, that is probably the most well-known scene for her and the one where she really just like goes for it and loses the plot pretty much 
and takes everything way too far and it's disturbing and hilarious at the same time in a lot of ways just because the performance is so over the top but it really works and as you say she's a great counterpart to Robin Tunney's character because again she's more like the final girl role in this you know that things will probably work out for her in the end but yeah, Feruza Volk is the craft. I think she is the first um, person that you think of when you think of this movie, hands down. Also, a bit of gallows humour with Chris's demise from the film because his number on the football team, when you see him practising, is 86. And Chris does get 86 in this movie. <laughs> so, I shouldn't laugh at that really, but... <laughs> dark humor (laughs) so what i find fascinating about the craft as well it has got such an atmosphere to it and i think that's what really stands out about it as you say is that creepiness i wouldn't say it's realistic by any means but the horror in it is subtle to a point it's not in your face it takes its time to develop and when you get these more frightening moments they really punch but i think some of this atmosphere what you feel from embroiling yourself in this movie comes from the fact that I genuinely believe after finding this out that because they were performing rituals that were they were fictitious but they were close to real rituals and some spooky occurrences actually happened on set and I I think you know you never know do you that that could have really impacted the general feel and tone of this film I'm just going to read off IMDb, the spooky occurrences that happened during shooting of the craft. The crew had to return to the location a second time to complete filming interrupted by several weird occurrences that even caused witch consultant Pat Devin to raise an eyebrow. So, of course, they had an actual witchcraft consultant on set to aid them with the uh, spell casting scenes. As the fog rolled in at midnight... Four actresses used actual Wiccan rites and language to invoke powerful forces. Then, as Feruza Bolk's character Nancy attempts to invoke the deity Manon, a flock of bats hovered over the set and the tide rose dramatically, extinguishing the circle of candles. Witchcraft consultant Devin recalls that Manon, a fictitious creation for the film, sounds very close to Mananon, the Gaelic god of the sea. Luckily, we weren't all swept to sea. And director Andrew Fleming is quoted, every time the girls started the ceremony and only when they would start the ceremony, the waves would start coming up tremendously fast, pounding heavily. Then, right when Nancy says her line, man and fill me, right at the exact moment we lost power, it was a very strange thing. Well, there you go. Don't mess with man on. Or man God of the <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, that could be a fictitious story to drum up publicity for the film. But I don't know, there's something about this film. I don't know if you get what I mean, but there's something in it that just creates this atmosphere. There just seems more to it than it just being a film. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, I think the the reason that that lands is because they don't treat witchcraft as something either trivial or daft. It's dealt with in a very... It's a matter-of-fact way in some cases, but it also gives it a certain amount of respect and reverence. It's not something that crackpots do. It's just something that people happen to have as an interest, and it's dealt with in that way. Normally, if you have witchcraft in a horror movie, 
it's all very over the top and the rituals are very theatrical and there's lots and lots of screaming and shouting and lights and fire and all this stuff. This is very low key in the craft. So it grounds it more, which gives it a more realistic edge, I think. Definitely. So another topic we are going to discuss in the podcast, which we have touched upon in regards to Rachel Tree's character of Rochelle. So this is actually looking outside the movie itself. So bear in mind, when you see the cover art for the craft, you have these four powerful teenage girls on the front cover, including Rachel True. She is a lead part in this film. However, she recently came forward about being ignored for like the promotional materials and she was always forgotten by the press junkets. Like she wasn't mentioned as if her character was less important than her co-stars. And yeah, her co-stars actually rang the studio to make them include her in these the press releases. And apparently she was the only one out of the main four girls that w- wasn't invited to the MTV Movie Awards. And I believe that she still had a lot of trouble in recent years when on the convention scene as well. Like she's often overlooked. And I just think that's really weird and disheartening because she has such an important part in this film. And it's an ensemble piece of four strong girls. Why is she being excluded from this? And if it's a race issue, I think, you know, we're in 2022. I think that's absolutely awful. It was awful then and it's awful now, if that's the case, because she's just as important as everybody else in that film. It clearly is a race issue as far as I'm concerned. And it shouldn't be because Rochelle is a key character in the movie. Without Rochelle, some of the stuff just wouldn't happen. And she's the one that drives a lot of the plot along. And she's the conscience of some of the movie as well. Because you do get Sarah. Sarah is the final girl, as you say. And a lot of the stuff that you experience is through Sarah's eyes. But when you look at her being pitted against the other three witches towards the end, Rochelle's really the one that isn't quite sure of the ethics of what they're doing. So she's the heart of the other group in the movie. So for her to be excluded, it's pretty clear to me why they excluded her. They shouldn't have done anyway. And the rest of the cast, I'm glad that they flagged it up that they needed to include her as well. But they shouldn't have had to in the first place. As we covered Sharknado 2 quite a long time ago, I thought it was fucking great that Rachel True turns up in the opening bit of Sharknado 2. She's been in far too little stuff since the craft because she really makes an impact in this movie. Definitely. So the other elephant in the room that we need to address when it comes to the craft is a little TV show that came out two (laughs) years later. (laughs) So my understanding is that Andrew Fleming had written a pilot or at least a treatment for a television version the craft now at the time i think viewers were hungry for this type of supernatural teen drama of course buffy the vampire slayer was a huge hit that spurned on shows like roswell and of course charmed now i i i will say this off the bat i am not a fan of charmed but this is nothing to do with the whole ripping off the craft it's nothing to do with that it's just i've genuinely attempted to watch this show and i cannot get into it just not for me but andrew Simon had written this pilot for the wb 
they were really interested and the whole plan was to have the um, How Soon Is Now song, which is included in the film as the theme song. And it is played in the movie. It's included on the soundtrack. But then suddenly out of nowhere it was dropped and then Charm just turns up with How Soon Is Now as the theme song to the point where Robin Tunney said that the ripoff was completely obvious to the point that people would think she was on Charmed for years and years after. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a super fan of Charmed. I did quite like it, but it's very clear where it gets all its influences from. Chiefly, the fact that the Love Spit Love version of How Soon Is Now is the title music. So instantly, if you've seen The Craft and you've seen Charmed, you're going to make that connection. Charmed isn't in the same league as the craft it's kind of the craft light and they go in various different directions and the tone of the piece is a lot more jokey i was okay with charmed it was fine i mean i watched it for a few seasons i don't think i got to the end of it because it lasted for like eight seasons i think i think i probably watched about the first three or four seasons and then thought yeah i'm done with this now the similarities they're just too many to just think that oh, we've just come up with this show about witches called Charmed, and it's it's really nothing to do with the craft, honestly. Yeah, and I'm kind of sad to know that there could have been an extension of the craft, there could have been a TV series, and I think they would have taken a darker route with it than Charmed was. As you say, I think Charmed was too light for me in terms of its content, that nothing really excited me about it. I just think the craft could have been a really edgy teen supernatural horror show and what could have been is quite sad because i think it would have done well at the time being partnered with buffy and that type of stuff yeah i mean i think it's the sort of thing now it would work in these days of streaming where the boundaries of what you can do within a tv show are not as rigid you can go in various directions that you probably couldn't have gone before i mean we've had the craft legacy we've had the new movie and it's okay. I didn't mind the craft legacy. It goes in some interesting directions. It doesn't slavishly copy the original movie, which I liked. It isn't really a patch on the craft, though. Even though they try to make it a more updated version of the sort of witchcraft mythology. And some of it's good. But overall, it just pales into insignificance at the side of this. The craft is always going to be a brilliant movie. And it's hard to try and make something that's gonna well not even top it emulate it so if you're out there and you're a big fan of the craft legacy i'm not hating on the craft legacy i thought it was fine but it just isn't the craft it doesn't really have the iconic moments that the craft does going back to the soundtrack if ever i listen to dangerous type by letters to cleo i can always see them walking through the high school in slow motion and you don't get that in in craft legacy, which you know it's it's fine, but it's not the craft. I love that song. Just to put that out there, that's one of my favourite songs on the soundtrack. But yeah, I've actually not seen the craft legacy. I was not in any kind of rush to see it. I may check it out at some point, but again, it's not really that big of huge interest to me. The craft is very much a one-off, and as you say, it's going to be so difficult to top because the magic is there. Sorry for the pun, but it is. <laughs> nice one. Just with, with, with that cast, that soundtrack, that script, those visuals, that story, just everything about it just works. 
and as I say, I honestly feel there is an atmosphere in this movie that I can't quite explain, and that it's just why it's so memorable. Going back to its legacy as well, this is an interesting fact I found out that Katy Perry's song Dark Horse from her album Prism is actually inspired by the craft. Um, I'd have to go back and listen to that song because I'm not that familiar with it. But I thought that was interesting that years later, there's still influence of this film going around in other media. I like the fact that Katy Perry is a fan of the craft. That kind of checks out as well, because I think Katy Perry, you could see her slotting in as one of the members of the circle. Got to say that if you are a little bit iffy about creepy crawlies, the last 15 minutes of this movie are going to just send you around the bend because there's, there's snakes, there's rats, there's scorpions, there's worms, there's cockroaches, there's maggots. So if that sort of thing, if it winds you up to see that sort of stuff, if you get a little bit of a chill down your spine when you see creepy crawlies, you might be a little bit thrown by the showdown between Nancy and Sarah at the end. It's a great showdown, but there's a lot of snakes in particular. And I think the the horror in it is very visceral. It's subtle, but when it hits, it's very visceral. And I know like scenes like that with all the creepy crawlies can really get your skin. It's not the most pleasant visuals, because not only have you got this dark magic happening on the screen, You've got this extra threat of these snakes. And I mean, I personally love snakes. I would hold snakes, but I think if I was surrounded by that many, I don't know. I I think I'd be trying to dodge them and try not to get bitten. Well, the the story is that Robinson was all right with the snakes and the rats and the roaches and everything else. Apart from the fact that there's one sequence where a rat drops onto the character's head and she wouldn't do that. They had to film it from the back using a double. And that's fair enough, I think. If you're going to be around those sorts of creatures, that's fine. But if somebody said, oh, hey, we're just going to dump a rat on your head, I'm not sure I would want that either. I've got no problem with rats, but one on my head, not sure. Snakes, fine. Uh, but yeah, as you say, that number of snakes, I'm not sure. And talking about what could have been with Cassin, which is very much a regular feature on this podcast. So... Both Alicia Silverstone and Angelina Jolie were up for the part of Sarah. And interestingly enough, Holly Marie Coombs, who went on to star in Charmed as one of the um, protagonists, was up for the role of Bonnie, which eventually went to Nev Campbell. And it was the first film that Nev Campbell starred in to have a huge worldwide release. Yeah, we haven't spoken about Nev Campbell yet, which is quite odd because we're both massive fans of her interesting role here because she does have quite a decent character arc starting off with this very very shy schoolgirl who has got all sorts of horrible things to deal with including the fact that she's got burns all over her body and then when the magic manages to transform her then she becomes a completely different character she's very glamorous she's aggressively sexual as well she passes one guy and just says oh nice ass Brilliant, brilliant performance from Nev Campbell, as always. It's nice to see her in a role that doesn't have her as this pigeonholed goody-goody person. There's something dark about her in this one. Yeah, and to be fair, I think there's always a dark element to whoever she's playing, even with Sidney Prescott, because that woman kicks ass. But I'm not going to get on a tangent about Scream, (laughs) even though I'm sitting here right now in my Scream t-shirt. But (laughs) I love the Scream franchise, we all know this. Anyway, 
Nev Campbell just really proves herself here as an actress. She's great. She's very vulnerable. Um, and again, you have a lot of empathy for her character. But then she does kind of like turn where she's less sympathetic by the end. She's just kind of wanting to break the rules and follow in Nancy's shadow a bit not realising the danger of what's to come. But I think soon um, she does go through an arc where, again, it's a lesson learned for her and she sort of redeems herself by the end. Angelina Jolie in the lead role. I'm not sure. I think you need somebody that's more outwardly vulnerable than Angelina Jolie. I mean, I know she was in Girl Interrupted and she's great in that, but I don't know about Angelina Jolie. Robinson seems so good in this role anyway that I think it's hard to get past the fact that she's so good that anybody else you'd think, yeah, probably didn't work. It's interesting that they considered Angelina Jolie. She is a great actress. Not sure she fits here. I know what you mean. I think maybe she could have worked as the Nancy character, yeah. but yeah, for Isabok, there's just no one who could take that part away from her. So... I'm kind of glad, well, I hope, it, you know, with the craft legacy, it's not a remake, so I hope nobody tries to emulate the Nancy character as such because I think that's a very tough act to follow. Absolutely. Nancy Downs is one of the iconic characters in horror. She's brilliant. And it's all down to Feruza Bulk. She's superb in this role, even though she's just horrible in the last act. You're still drawn to this character just because she's so great. And even though she is completely off her head most of the time, she does end up saying things in the middle of these flights of weirdness because she's driving really fast along a main road and she's trying to run the lights. But in the middle of all of this, she says something along the lines of, oh, we're actually having a theological conversation. So you've got this weird contrast between the stuff that she's doing sort of physically and the stuff that she's saying. So for me, Nancy is right up there in the pantheon of great horror characters. When you're talking about iconic figures in horror, you have to mention Nancy Downs somewhere along the line. Definitely. And I think this movie is up there now as a classic. It's definitely a cult classic. It's garnered a following over the years. I don't know, some, sometimes in my head it still feels like a recent film. I know that must sound really weird, mm. but I think it's just because it's a film of my youth and I can't believe it's as old as it is now, but it still holds up. And every time I watch it, I just get transported back to um, those kind of nostalgic days, really, of VHS and good 90s horror. And like you said, all the way back at the start, it's aged pretty well, this. I don't think it drags in particular types of technology. So it does have that timeless quality about it. And you're right, it doesn't feel like a movie that is 26 years old now, because I saw it when it first came out and I've watched it fairly regularly since then for the last 26 years. So for me... It hasn't really aged because I've always had the craft around since it came out. I think it's a staple of your quintessential Halloween viewing. It's not Halloween without the craft. So please watch it this Halloween season because you just need to. As I said, in the last episode, I wasn't sure if which of the V-Struck was making me feel too Halloween-y. But no, seeing the craft now, let's get into spooky season. That, that is definitely how I'm feeling. So to round things off, IMDb has a score of 6.4 out of 10. 
Rotten Tomatoes, a 57% tomato meter with a 65% audience score. I think that is too low for what this movie is. It's not like 10 out of 10, but I'd definitely say it's a solid 8 out of 10. And I would definitely give it 85%. Yeah, what have you people been watching? That's terrible scoring. I guess it may not be for everybody. If I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, and I'm going to be really trying hard to play devil's advocate here, I guess some people are not going to gel with the fact that it's specifically American high school types and specifically female American high school types. But I don't see what the problem is because the themes are universal. Even if it's dressed up in this odd little witchcraft plot, it still portrays the age-old dilemma of how far are you going to push this if you find that you have almost like a superpower if you find that you can do things that other people can't will you do it for good or will you do it for evil how far are you going to push it and these are timeless plots so regardless of the fact that it's a young adult witchcraft story it still manages to hit all the bases of classic film and literature so yeah i mean go figure you know it's maybe it's guys who just don't like to see empowered women taking center stage who knows well it's 2022 and i think you need to get used to it if you aren't into these female empowerment feminist type movies because they're here to stick around there's going to be more progressive movies coming out and what better way to start than with the craft because i think it has laid the groundwork in so many positive ways for female-fronted horror. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're taking this all far too seriously, take a leaf out of Sarah's book to quote her, relax, it's only magic. (laughs) Or is it? I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 79 of the HD Movie Podcast. Oh, hang on a minute, no, no, hang on a minute. Before we do all of this, We've got to talk about the dead sharks in The Craft. How could we forget the dead sharks? I mean, The Craft is an accidental shark movie. Like, this is the gift that just keeps on giving. I mean, we're just off Summer of Sharks and ready to talk about witchcraft, but this movie has actually combined the two, which is very pleasing for us both. Yeah, it's a witchcraft-shark crossover. After the ritual on the beach, the following morning, the foursome realise something is happening over the other side of the bay and then walk around the corner and then find a load of dead sharks have been washed up on the beach, which Nancy thinks is a gift from Manon. But I was just sitting there thinking, dead sharks! So after we've watched all these shark movies, all they needed was some witches to come in and sort things out and save the day. Exactly. Instead of having that crap hunter in The Last Shark with his eagle jacket, they should have just brought Nancy down and said, there you go, Nancy, there's a shark over there, just just kill it. Now, this is such a mind-blowing revelation for us, I have to say. <laughs> right, so now we've got that out of the way, that was episode 79 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you want to add anything else about the craft, just let us know anything that you feel that we haven't talked about that we should have. Just get it in there. There's so many elements to talk about with the craft and I'm here for it. But with that said, the way to chat with us and discuss these kinds of things is to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast, where you can keep up to date with all our future episodes. 
and look back at our previous episodes or check them out for the first time if you have already. Coming next, episode 80. We're going to step away from the witchy world for just one episode because it's another landmark episode and I think it's one that we need to deal with. After the success of our Shazam, Kazam, whatever it was, episode, I think we do need to return to the weird and wonderful area that is the Mandela Effect. As you guys have already worked out on this podcast, we love talking weird stuff. And the Mandela Effect is something that we'll never truly know the answers to, but it's always fun to speculate. So we're going to present 10 of our favourite movie-related Mandela Effects. So I hope you guys are looking forward to that, and we will try to find some as obscure as possible, but we'll definitely probably be touching on ones that affect some of our personal favourite movies. So stay tuned for that. And again, 80 episodes. Thank you so much to Darren for co-hosting this podcast with me and for you guys for listening to us for this time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I can say right back at you, Hayley. Thanks for putting up with me for 80 episodes. Not many people would. (laughs) So until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.